This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you like underground music, movies, and more, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed merch, vinyl, CDs, and more. Plug in the discount code 10OFF, T-E-N-O-F-F, for a 10% discount at portlanddistro.com. Hey, everyone. I'd like to welcome back my friend Paul Aloisio of Restless Spirit. He's been on the show before, and uh, we always had a great time talking together, so I figured I'd ask him back. Coming off of the Halloween season, and I know this might seem more suited to necromaniacs, but you know, there's the idea of scary and disturbing. So Paul, having a wealth of knowledge in the horror world, I figured I'd ask him, and he's also quite a bit younger than me, so there's a generational thing going on here, about what are the most disturbing movies that we've seen. So we list off our top five. There are a couple of crossovers, definitely, which I thought was interesting, and a couple of things that definitely are uh, in different directions, and it was just a lot of fun. Before we get going, I want to shout out everyone that is uh, on the Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can help support the podcast. That gives you access to all of the bonus content. Now, there's a bunch of stuff that I post on there that is not on the regular stream. We have the Long Shadows show, which is me and Ralph talking about weird fiction and related topics like that. We have the brand new Hollywood Babylon series with Evan Hopper, which is like a classic movie. The pilot episode actually went up on the regular stream. We talked about Apocalypse Now. And then there's other things like demos, um, a bunch of uh, stuff from The Vault, and other miscellaneous things. Uh, I've been posting demos of some of the new Tombs material that I've been working on, and um, you know, a little bit of exposition about what the deal is with that. Before we get into the episode, I want to, uh, once you're done listening to this, I want you to head on over to the Horror Wolf 666 podcast, hosted by Brandon Legion, the Into the Necrosphere podcast, the only music-related show that I listen to personally, hosted by Jackie Smith. Of course, Necromaniacs, which I co-host with Mike Scandato and Jeff Kashid. And on Sundays, the Lord's Day, head over for all things blasphemous, occult, and esoteric to Soul Knox, hosted by Carl Hikara. Oh, one last thing. Uh, I always forget to do this, but uh, yeah, if you want to follow either Everything Went Black, Necromaniacs, myself on Facebook, we still exist on Facebook. You can check us out on Instagram. You can find me, Michael D.C. Hill on Instagram. Everything Went Black has a brand, actually a fairly new Instagram page that's mostly run by Ralph. And of course, Necromaniacs. So uh, yeah, give us a follow. Um, You know, we can check out pictures of cats and stuff like that. So anyway, on to the show. Paul, how's it going, man? It's been a while. Thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, man, of course. I saw on social media that you guys just played with The Obsessed. Uh, was that sick? It, it was super sick. Um, I've gotten to know Wino a, a little bit over the years. Uh, we played with him once. I saw them multiple times, and uh, you know, we just bullshit whenever we see each other now. Uh, so it's like pretty cool, you know, like a lot of people say, like, don't meet your heroes or something like that. But I mean, why knows one of these guys that like, if you go up to him and talk to him, he will talk. 
you know, he, he won't just be like, oh, yeah, it's all good. You know, he, he will, like, actually have a conversation with you and brutally honest and really, really nice, very interesting guy. So last night was it was really good. Very fun time. Also, you know, my amp just went out during the set. I oh, think, no. like, the house cabs were bad. So it's, like, my worst nightmare because we're playing with, like, these legends. <laughs> oh, man. And all of a sudden, the, the guitar just stops and I, I like couldn't figure it out for like literally six minutes it was it was rough uh, so, so what what do you end up doing did someone have a loan a loaner for you or so actually so the obsessed has a second guitar player now oh and uh he said i could use his his amp um which was fine it was just you know they had a i, I forget what the word is i'm blanking but uh you know we had our cabs well the house cabs in front of their stuff so i i you know i play with two heads mm -hmm. so i have i have a guitar in my hand um two heads on one cab and then the other is on the other side of the stage so then i had the problem of, all right how do i move this out of the way and like no one else really knew what was going on so it was just kind of like it was honestly my worst nightmare but it's fine because I got through it and you know, like every time something like that happens to me, I'm like, all right, that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be if that ever happened. We're not a band that could continue if, if I can't play guitar really, because there's only me. That would change the whole uh, vibe of the band. If it was just bass drums and you singing. Yeah, it, it wouldn't work. So, but we got it, we got it figured out and it was a good learning experience that basically, you know, I don't know, man. Like, I, I've had a couple things like that happen to me where I thought it was the worst thing in the world. Like, I actually tripped over my pedal board and, like, fell, like, flat on my face before. Oh, no. And that was always, like, I could not imagine a more embarrassing scenario. And it finally happened. And I was like, oh, okay. That wasn't that bad. So, you know, losing my amp's power. I, I think that the, the house cabs were just, uh, I think there was something wrong with them. Because they were like a little iffy you know and then i plugged my rig in today at home and everything was fine thank god so despite yeah. that it was a good set and uh the obsess was amazing as usual and it was a very intimate thing like we played at amh and it's i don't know if you've ever played that venue before uh no that's way it's like out in uh in amity right yeah it's very small so it was, it was cool to see them there and uh yeah, overall, good night. Suffering for it today because, you know, it's getting colder. And uh, I had so many friends come out. So, you know, I feel like the worst part about like, being a singer in a band is talking to people before and after your set because you're just yelling. Oh, you're yeah. using your voice mm -hmm. improperly. So today I'm, I'm all hoarse. And also, you know, the cold is not very good for your voice when you're screaming and yelling. But. You sound no, all right. You sound yeah. okay, man. You know your voice doesn't sound fucked up or anything like that. It sounds pretty good. Yeah, it's just you know when you you know when your vocal cords are just like tired. Sure, I do so know that. It's just yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> it's just a. Uh, it's I mean it's all right. It's it's nothing. Uh, like I'm actually complaining. It's just you know we haven't really played that much because we're in the studio, uh, working on an album. So, you know, touring a lot and then really not doing that and sort of like staying low key and then going back when you play a show like every couple of months, it's like, you know, that feeling. It's almost like, Oh, this is what it felt like. Like this is, 
this is real life to me. Yeah, I kind of hate doing like one-off things for that reason. You know, it's um, it's almost like it takes you like the set doesn't is the set never feels as good as it does as maybe the second week of like a tour. You know, like the second week of the tour, like maybe even like the third or fourth show of a tour is like when you're really dialed in and it's like everything's good and you you feel warmed up and you're you know you're ready to rock. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, like when you you get away from that and you come home you go to work or if in your case if you guys are in the studio which is a completely different environment and then you got to you know get on stage and like perform the songs it's just like it's always a weird sort of thing you know yeah i mean i feel like also you know as you know being a touring musician it's to be honest for me it's kind of weird to just like go back home and just like sleep in my own bed after playing the set it is you know, at one time we were on tour. Oh, actually, this happens frequently. Like when we play, uh, you know, like in New York, uh, you know, since I've been living out in Jersey, we haven't, we've done these tours, but we haven't actually played anywhere near our, our homes. So, uh, but back when I lived in Brooklyn, you know, we play shows at like, uh, you know, like Webster Hall or like, uh, you know, um, Irving Plaza or something like that, or at St. Vitus on certain tours. And then you, you would go home and sleep in your, your apartment, and then the next day you drive and go somewhere else. It's just, yeah. it really is a weird feeling, you know? I, I mean, like, you know, when you're on tour, part of the ritual is almost, you know, you get used to being in a different place every night, and that almost becomes, like, it's not comfortable to do that, but it, it's, it gets comfortable. Like, that routine, it's like, oh, okay, you play a show. Where are we driving? Where are we sleeping? what hotel who whose house so it's just it's just kind of i mean a weird thing to complain about honestly you know being able to sleep in your own bed but it, it for sure it, it's weird you know like today it was like all right show's over i'm back to just normal home life well they're definitely two different th- things you know they're two different phases you know it's um that's I don't, that's why i said like i don't like doing like one-offs partially for that reason and also it's just like i don't feel like we play as well as if it's like one show after not playing for, you know dates for a month or two and yeah a hundred percent yeah yeah it's just i feel like the product isn't quite up to you know up to standards you know the out the output isn't really there you know it's almost like also like playing a place that's so local that we played so many times you almost get like too comfortable in it i like being in new places with people you don't know and and really facing that challenge of like we got we got to win this crowd over that's true uh, depending on the crowd i guess <laughs> yeah you know uh if they're hostile then it's uh, more difficult i guess you know oh yeah <laughs> you know but it is what it is it, it, great night we had a lot of fun man obviously we just love playing so yeah i haven't really been out to too many venues out on long island except for like jones beach or something like that i saw boston and joan jet play once like uh that's like the the last time I saw a show on Long Island was like maybe five or six years ago, and that was that was the show. It was uh, Boston and Joan Jett. Oh yeah, I, when was this? Because I saw Boston at Jones Beach a while back. It was probably like uh, maybe twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen, somewhere somewhere around there. Oh, okay, I think mine was a little early, but also like, what a great show, by the way. Cause I love Boston, and whoever's singing for them now, if they're even still a thing. I thought he did an amazing job. Yeah, 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 definitely. My uh, the 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 lady that I was with at the time, she was a big Joan Jett fan, and uh, 
you know, she was uh, she was all about going to see Joan Jett, and of course, I was like, cool, you know, but like, let's stick around and watch Boston. And uh, I've always been a huge fan of theirs. They were actually one of the first bands, first rock bands I ever listened to. And they they crushed. They were great. They had like the the killer like visuals, you know, the um, great light show. They sounded great. The vocalist was was totally on point. And uh, what I liked about him, you know, obviously their original vocalist uh, took his own life like a while back. And this guy was like, did a great job, totally professional. But there was this this like vibe that he had on stage where he's just like happy to be there. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't, he was humble, but not too humble. He was, had great stage presence, but he was also not like overdoing it. You know what I mean? He was just a solid member of the band. Obviously Tom Scholz is the, is the main dude in that band. And he just had this like very, very cool vibe on stage. You know what I mean? Yeah, I got that too. I was very surprised. Um, Also, I'm pretty sure that, he just like worked at like a Home Depot or, or something like that before auditioning. And, you know, I think like Boston was like his favorite band or something like that. And then, so he goes from just like being a regular, like everyday guy who's fronting Boston. So that, that's amazing, man. It's crazy. And so, and he definitely has that vibe. It's just like in every, he's just like an everyday dude, just like living his dream and doing it excellently. Yeah, the vocals in Boston are pretty pretty tight, man. It's like that's that's not just a gig you can step into, you know what I mean? Yeah, you got you got to be on point at all times, especially um, singing for a legendary band whose singer is you know no longer here. Uh, you you really fill in some big shoes, and Brad Delt was incredible. Oh yeah, definitely. His, man. You're right; like his range is just amazing. Yeah, that was that was probably still hold up. they they totally do, man. Especially the first two; those are like my go tos. I remember I got those on cassette, like back when I was a kid. And um, I still, you know, after that show, uh, you know, I was kind of repping them a little bit, you know, with with my the, the woman I was with, and she was like started coming around to them, and uh, I was like, yeah, it's it's the first couple couple records, but then I started listening to the later material that I wasn't familiar with, and it was actually really catchy. Yeah, I, I never really got into it. The first two are absolute classics. And I think, like, I had a greatest hits from them, like, on CD back in the day. And th- there were a couple there were a couple songs that were from their later albums. And they they were pretty good. Um, but I, just, I really never went and explored it further than that. And I really should because, you know, not for nothing, also, side note, those first two albums sound, like, the sound quality still holds up so great today. You know, uh, Tom Scholz uh, was the guy. Do you remember um, Rocktron? That or I think they, they still exist. Rocktron, the company. Yeah, that was his uh, his company. Yes, and he he'd do like all those like really. I feel like his tone was just so like clean. Yeah, yeah. He he's an electrical engineer. That's what he was. Yeah. I think I I mean this might be uh, folklore, but uh, I I think. The information I have is that he went to MIT. You know, it makes sense. He was like in Boston, like you know, the name of the band's Boston. They're all dudes from that part of the country. Uh, you know, the word that I had growing up it was that he was a an electrical engineer because he that rock man, like that, 
this is really funny. Like, uh, it, it was there was a thing that came out in the in the late '80s called a Rockman. That was like a, a Walkman. It looked like a Walkman. You plugged your guitar into it, and there was headphones. And uh, you know, you had distorted cl- and clean, and that was it. <laughs> it was just like <laughs> that was like his flagship product for for Rocktron. And um, so he was a guy who was like very much into like signal processing and. You know, so I'm not surprised that those records sounded great. And, uh, you know, and later on, like, his his line of effects. I actually had a bunch of them, um, like, reverbs. And, you know, um, I had a chorus pedal because, like, I figured, you know, his guitar tone is very chorusy. So I'm like, oh, I mean, I, he probably has a sick chorus, you know. And, and it was actually pretty good. Yeah, I'd be interested to, to hear some of that stuff because, you know, I know that he had the company and, and whatnot, but I don't think I've ever, like, honestly seen one in person. There's a whole line. Uh, I don't know if I, I'm. I'm assuming they still exist. You know what I mean? Um, they had a noise suppressor that was really good. Uh, I remember a couple people back in the day would use those. Uh, yeah, look it up, definitely. But yeah, so uh, so tonight's um, episode is uh, an interesting episode because um, not so much the best movies but we're going to talk about the most disturbing movies that we've come across the movies that actually moved us emotionally and had lasting impact but before we get to that let me ask you a question paul since um you're you know you're a guy with a lot of background in in uh in horror writing and journalism you used you know you used to write for a, you know websites horror websites you know journalistic uh, articles things like that what would you say is the difference between a thriller or a horror movie? Uh, that is, and I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. Yeah. Um, so if, if I had to give my definition of between like a thriller and horror, it's, um, I would say the tone. Okay. Of the film, number one. Um, also, I would say that obviously, you know, horror movies often have otherworldly or supernatural elements, monsters, things like that. Um, I possibly think that the difference would be what the film is trying to do to you. Is it trying to, you know, leave you on the edge of your seat like a detective movie or something like that? Or is it trying to is its goal almost to be vicious um, where you have something like terrifier. Clearly the goal is to gross you out, to just scare you. So I, I feel like it is a pretty tough thing to differentiate. And I've also kind of thought at times that it's uh, more like a, an, an industry thing or a media thing where some movies and, and studios, they're scared of the term horror. They think it's a little lowbrow. So thriller just sounds a little better. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, something that I ponder a lot, actually, especially when we're coming up with this, um, this, this episode idea. Uh, you know, there's definitely the extremes, you know, stuff like Terrifier or, you know, movies with like a clearly supernatural bent obviously horror films and then on the other end of the spectrum you know there's something that's like more of a police procedural 
you know, that's a thriller, you know, I would say giallos maybe fall into that thriller category as a, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you want to really, uh, you know, split hairs, uh, then there's like that borderland of something like this is, this is not on my, on my list, but a film similar to this was on my list. That's debatable whether or not it's a horror movie or a thriller, something like silence of the lambs where it's no supernatural element. The, uh, you know, serial killers are are clearly scary. So I guess like it's the the creative intent of the film that actually makes it a horror film versus just a thriller. Yeah, and that's sort of what I was saying. Like you could sometimes you could feel um, what the movie a really well done movie you could feel what it's trying to get out of you. Um, and. You know, so there are movies like if we even talk about that movie Seven. Yeah. So that's widely regarded as like a thriller. But it's got some pretty graphic stuff, pretty gross stuff, and frankly, pretty scary stuff. So so why is it a thriller? Well, what makes it a thriller movie and not a horror movie? Or let's also just throw this in there. What makes it, is it a drama movie? It's The tone is sort of, ambiguous in that area personally i think that you could consider it a horror movie um light horror but it's almost because the the whole like intention is to keep you guessing right and and to figure it out so then it it becomes like well is it a mystery movie then because no one even says things like that anymore no no no, mystery movies don't really exist although they they do all the time a movie like Knives Out. Um, clearly, that's a whodunit type movie. But people don't often say, oh, that's that's a mystery movie. And stuff like Sherlock Holmes has sort of been like phased out of the cultural zeitgeist. Um, so mysteries aren't as prevalent. But it, it's... The, yeah, I, I definitely do think that there's a, a big part of the distinction from thriller and horror being a little more about what journalists want to make of the film. Right, so if they want to say that the movie is pretty smart, um, and, and they're praising it, they may decide to call it a thriller. Um, whereas on the other side, before horror movies were called like elevated horror and A twenty four stuff like that, um, you know, I remember, I mean, a few short years ago, it was like almost calling a movie that could be construed in many different ways just a simple horror movie it was almost a knock to it right i remember yeah I, I could see what you're saying with that yeah so and uh you know it, it's a really tough distinction and uh there's so many things that go in, in into it that I, I feel like there is no real answer but if i had to give my perception that's what that's what my answer would be yeah that's that's uh you know there's no uh i i don't really have a clear answer from what you know for this myself i mean one of the movies I saw the last like year or so that really, um, you know, kind of shook that definition with me was a movie called Humans, which was on uh, Showtime. I don't know if you ever saw that one. No, I've actually never heard of it. It's it's like not even. It's it's basically a family drama shot like a horror film. Okay. It has uh, Richard Jenkins is in it, you know, from Six Feet Under. Yeah. And a bunch of other people, and it really. All it has to do, uh, Amy Schumer is in it. Uh, it just has to do with uh, a lot, mostly talking 
takes place in um, a New York City apartment. There's like uh, generations of family involved. There's typical family stuff that goes on. But the film, the way that it's shot, makes you, there's this, everything just seems so menacing. You know, like there's, you feel like there might be some supernatural element to it. But at the end of the day, the film is just about, you know, families dealing with like, you know, getting older, uh, you know, disappointments in life, you know, stuff like that, you know, possible mortality, like one of one person has cancer, like that kind of thing. Yeah. And so so there's a, a pretty good distinction because it doesn't seem like the intention was really to almost uh, be aggressive with the with the viewer, for lack of a better term. Right. So there's nothing that's that's so really out there in your face screaming like this movie is out this series, whatever it was, is out to hurt you. Um, well, yeah, I, yeah I, I exactly. It. You know, and, and that's I, I bring that up because of um, because that movie was like disturbing. You know what I mean? And that kind of, I, I bring all this up to kind of go full circle back to like, you know, this idea that we had of our top five, just most disturbing films. Because obviously there's like tons of great horror films out there that are great. You know, obviously, uh, you know, The Thing, you know, The Fog, you know, Ad nauseum. There's a tons of stuff. A lot of those films weren't really disturbing, you know. And the types of movies I want to talk about are things that stick, stuck with me personally that, you know, maybe sit up at night thinking about things um, and we're, there's a lot of uh, just discomfort, you know what I mean? Totally. I, I mean, I feel like for a movie to truly disturb you, it has to have something that really shakes you to your core. Yeah. And, and it's a lot different from, you know, to be honest, a movie like the first Halloween, it could be disturbing to some people. Um, let's say if they've dealt with violence in their personal life or something like that. Uh, and they saw the movie as a younger person when maybe something traumatic had happened to them. Um, they could take something in that movie with them and it could really resonate them and disturb them. Whereas someone like me, it's, you know, it's cool. It's fun. Michael Myers. Hell yeah. Um, so it's also like, I, I feel like there's no real prerequisite for a movie to be super disturbing. It's just, you get to decide that, right? You know, there are a lot of movies that have this reputation for being super disturbing, um, but some people may watch them and, and just not get that reaction from it because it's a very personal thing. The way you internalize it is very personal as well. Yeah, it's like a totally subjective thing. That's why that's why I think this would be an interesting conversation to have. All right. Totally. Yeah, so, so you want to start with your number five and we'll, we'll move up the line? Okay, so the way that I tried to almost rank them, um, and a lot of these movies have to do with, with like I was saying, um, it affected me for whatever sort of reasons. And the movie may not be the scariest or anything like that, but my number five uh, would actually be Hereditary. Oh, okay. And it, for a very specific reason, um, Obviously, we're massive spoilers for all of these movies we're going to be talking about. But also, I mean, who, who hasn't seen that movie? <laughs> I mean, it's it's been out for a while. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I, I felt the movie had sort of almost like a David Lynch type vibe, right? Where it was almost like so surreal. Some of it was like 
kind of funny, but it blurred the lines of like being so funny that it's almost like scary. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, something that really affected me when I first saw the movie was when and I'm blanking. I'm so bad with names in movies. Also, I'm sure you've got this by now. But when uh, so the little girl um, is is choking because she's having the allergic reaction. And she's sticking her head out the window, and then her head gets off. <laughs> she gets decapitated. Yeah. Um, I'm laughing because I said her head gets off, not that she got decapitated. But um, <laughs> so that part, I was in my seat thinking, they're not going to do that. That's not going to happen, whatever. And then it did happen. And a lot of people may think that that's the disturbing part. It was it was a little hard to watch, sure, but what I saw after that, the scene of um, Tony Collette, who plays the mother in that movie, screaming and crying, her grief over losing her daughter, was so convincing to me, and so realistic, and you know, I just remembered the dichotomy of you know, the son comes home and he's like shell shocked from it. And he just like goes to bed and he's clearly disturbed. And then you just, this like really in your face screaming and crying. And I I felt when I was watching that movie in the theater that I was really seeing a mother find out that her daughter got her head cut off. It was so convincing. And, it was so powerful that it, it kind of made me feel like I need like I need to take a breather, you know? It, it was just so well done. And I remember it was the first movie in an extremely long time that actually affected me like that. Where it was like, I can't listen to her scream and cry like that because it's 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 like affecting me. Um Yeah, totally. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, that that's that's a heavy, heavy that that's actually the thing I would single out in the film too. Not for me, it was the uh, when the, the the brother and son slash son when he's dry, he has the decapitated body in the car and he comes home and he just goes into bed knowing that in the morning someone's gonna find that body there and sure enough that's what happens and at first you hear her screaming off screen I believe right yeah and then she's like on you know I think she's on her like hands and knees yeah just and you're right like how he he drives home. He just, you know, he goes into the house, doesn't say anything to anyone. And it's almost like a, a quiet moment that just erupts with not so much, you know, often scenes they in movies, they want to almost guide you through how to feel. So maybe some creepy music or something like that. It was just quiet and it's broken up by just screaming and wailing. And I, I really felt like, the actress did such an amazing job at making me think I was watching real life. I was hearing it, everything about it. I thought it was very well done. Um, and it, it's pretty cool also because it, it wasn't so much at seeing the thing that happened. It was thinking about, wow, like this, this woman is hurting so badly. And uh, yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a good one. Man. I really enjoyed that movie. Yeah, it was pretty good. What's your top five? What's your fifth one? All right, my number five, anyone who's been listening either to this podcast or Necromaniacs, the horror podcast I do, will know 
a little bit of the backstory with this film. So number five, The Exorcist, the 1973 William Friedkin directed film written by William Peter Blatty, who also went on to write Legion, the uh, sequel, which was essentially that was Exorcist 3. Okay. Now, when I was a young person, very like a baby, essentially, my parents took me to the fucking drive-in to see this movie. Like, to my earliest memory of being in a cinema, in a cinematic situation, was sitting in the backseat of the car that my parents, of my parents, with this film playing. And what they were thinking is beyond me. (laughs) But, like, that... (laughs) So, there is, like, a deep... Like, the feelings of this film are, are just ingrained in me. To me, The Exorcist is still... The thing of nightmares, you know, and and I, yes. not even not even the the you know the the director's cuts, you know, none of that stuff, the original one, okay. Furthermore, aside from being uh, you know exposed to something like that at a very impressionable age, the thing that really there is the scene where Reagan comes down from her bedroom, and says you're going to die up there to the uh, astronaut, okay, and then pees on the floor, all right. Yeah. Oh man, that scene. Yeah, that scene resonated with me as a kid because I and and this is just like free associating these ideas where my parents would have you know they they were you know they would have visitors they'd have coffee and cake and you know talk and they'd have like other couples come over sit in the living room you know and, and I was still like a young kid so I would go to bed like nine thirty or whatever and I would you know hear hear them in the kitchen or the uh, the dining room rather you know and, and our house. You know, we didn't live in a very particularly big house, but as a young kid, I felt like I was living in a mansion. You know what I mean? It felt like the house was gigantic. But, so I felt really far away from everyone. And after seeing that film, I thought about how, man, I I just saw this movie where this young person gets, you know, fucking possessed by by a demon. You know, it's like, and the idea of not feeling safe and the idea of like, getting up and going into the into the you know the living room and peeing on the floor in front of everyone and telling them they're all going to die was something that would be in my head when I was a kid and uh cuz that was like the beginning of her possession and it was almost like she was partially possessed but still oh, basically a human you know and that transition always really disturbed me when I was a young kid and to this day I still watch that. I mean, I love that movie. I watch it several times a year. I just watched it last month as part of, you know, Halloween sort of seasonal thing. And it's a brilliant film. It's a brilliant novel. Um, you know, Blatty's an incredible writer. I read a bunch of his other stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's just um, that movie just will always be the stuff of nightmares for me. I mean, absolutely. And actually, that's on my list as well. Oh. Except- I maybe I'll tell my experience with it and where it falls later, but so I won't contribute too much until later. But I a hundred million percent agree. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent agree. That movie deserves a spot on the list. All right. So what's your number four? Okay, so number four might be a little surprising because. It's not really known as that disturbing of a movie, um, but it would be the original K 
Cabin Fever. Okay. From Eli Roth. Yeah. And uh, there's just something about, you know, one of my greatest fears is just getting sick and not being able to do anything about it. Um, I've always had some like, health anxiety throughout my life. And this movie just like took that fear and just really amped it up to like 11. (laughs) So all these, you know, younger, you know, supposedly attractive looking kids, you know, they're in the woods, they're partying, they're doing whatever. And then they just get this flesh eating bacteria or virus, whatever it is. And I remember one scene in particular, uh, one of the girls is, is bathing and shaving her legs and with the razor blade, the the flesh just starts coming off and seeing that because it was such a benign thing for someone to be doing with such disastrous consequences really freaked me out so so badly and just watching like these people are just powerless against it right and it's not like they get a cough it's a lot worse than that it was super and, and not for nothing also i think uh, so Ryder Strong, who was in Boy Meets World, which most people my age watched growing up, uh, seeing him go from, you know, the only real experience I had from him was in this heartwarming kids show. And uh, now watching him be in a movie where just horrible things are happening around him, he's in this nightmare scenario, really also affected me um, be- because of that uh contrast the only time i've ever seen him in something is you know a a kid show that everybody watched everybody liked um but it it definitely was just the fact that they're all alone out there and there's nothing they can do about it and it's things are just going from bad to worse and eli roth has such like a, a sick dark humor that the movie is almost a little playful and there are actually some very funny moments in the movie and just the the disturbing nature of this virus just wreaking havoc on, on these teenagers really, really messed me up, to be honest. And I, I, like I said, I don't think that that movie would probably be on too many people's lists. It's certainly nothing like The Exorcist where, you know, everybody's got a story about that movie. Um, but going along with the theme of what movies, if you had to choose the top five most disturbing movies, I think that it played into one of my fears and really, really messed me up watching it many years ago. Um, And that's also something very interesting about horror that, uh, you know, certain movies can really just wreak havoc (laughs) if you have a certain way that you feel in your mind. And uh, if a movie almost like pokes at it, you know, so if I'm scared about getting sick or something like that, and I have, you know, Eli Roth and his movie prodding that fear with a stick, you're like, come on, <laughs> face it. This is, this is like the worst, worst case scenario. It really messed me up. And uh, I honestly, I really liked the movie too. Um, it just, it's a really good movie. And I, I think Eli Roth for, for a little bit, he was really, he was onto something good. Yeah, that, that was that's one of the, my uh, one of my go to Eli Roth films. Actually, um, you know, definitely any any that's almost like a subgenre 
on its own is is the uh, infection subgenre in horror. You know, where you could potentially get infected by something, and like the the whole, especially coming out of the pandemic, where you know this unseen you know organism is out there infecting you. But uh, yeah, that, that's a that's a good that's a definitely a um, a good film. And funnily enough, you know, this is I saw it. Well, maybe not funnily enough, but I saw it before I ever thought something like COVID was a real thing. Um, so imagine, you know, me watching it. And be like, oh, man, this is like so scary. It's this invisible thing infecting people. Uh, so then when I started finding out about COVID, I was like, oh, my God, no, <laughs> it's real. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I was not happy when, when I first found out about COVID, to be completely honest, as many other people. Um, so what would you give your number four? A, a film called Reflecting Skin. Have you heard that of that film? The name sounds vaguely familiar. Um, I definitely need to know a little bit more about it right. uh, before. It uh, came out in 1990. It was written and directed by Philip Ridley, and it's an early Viggo Mortensen movie. It's like when he was oh. still relatively uh, you know, an unknown actor. It might have been one of his first roles. And... It's shot. It looks amazing. It has like, um, it looks like it was shot in like the sixties. Like it, it has this, um, like almost like a Technicolor look to it, like a, like a James Dean giant or something like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it takes place out in the Midwest and it has to do with, um, a young boy, uh, named Seth and his older brother is Cameron. That's uh, played by uh, Viggo Mortensen. His older brother is, uh, away in world war two in the Pacific islands and his mother refers to where he's at as the pretty islands. And you find out later on that he was in one of the boats where they detonate detonated a atomic bomb, a, a test, not, not the dropping it on, on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but they, they tested a, uh, an atomic bomb out there. Okay. So, um, so he's been exposed to radiation and he comes home, you know, he's done with his tour of duty. And uh, concurrently, there's all these different threads that are happening. Around the same time, there's also this group of uh, greasers driving around in a Cadillac. These, like, young toughs. And uh, they're, they're this ever-present entity, you know, mar- marauding on the dusty roads of the plains in the Midwest out there. And, uh, you know, people, there's been, like, young kids have been disappearing and dying and, you know, found in wells and stuff like that. And... Um, there's also this unspoken thing about Seth's dad being like a a pedophile. And it just it's not really stated, but there's this inference that he likes young kids. And uh I want and because of this this feeling that he has, rather than to go on and, and hurt people, he just burns himself alive at the gas station. It's incredible. Like the the father. The father. Like he I don't believe yeah. he it's not clear if he actually did anything or acted on his feelings but he was consumed by these feelings and then he burns himself alive like in, like immolates himself there's another older lady that shows up her name is dolphin blue okay and she's like just you know weird odd woman uh but cameron seth's brother older brother, Vigo Mortensen, they start a, a relationship, you know, and he's hanging out with her a lot. And Seth notices that Vigo 
aka Cameron, is starting to lose his hair. Uh, you know, he has all he's getting sickly, he's losing weight. Obviously, he's dying of radiation poisoning. Okay. But he believes that she's a vampire. Okay. So um that's none of this stuff is really what disturbs me because the young toughs in the Cadillac are the ones that are actually murdering all the kids. And at the end of the movie, they they roll up on Seth and they were like we'll see you soon and they drive away and then Seth is like screaming into the night and it's that's the scene that fucking I still think about that scene because it's like more like to me the Cadillac group is is just death basically you know and it's the movie speaks about that moment in your life when you're like a young kid and you don't have a care in the world you're just you know riding your bike you know, blowing up frogs, you know, things like that, which is what something they do in the in the movie. I, I've never harmed any animals when I was a kid, but, uh, you know, making up stories about, you know, these attractive older women saying they're vampires and things like that. But it's, it, you go from that moment to realizing that life is finite and you're, everyone's mortal and that death eventually will come for you. And that's yes. kind of like, to this day, like I've watched this movie uh, several times and... Uh, you know, most people just trip out on how beautiful the film is, but for me, because I saw I saw this movie as at a young age, it was like, oh man, that that now you know, I'm gonna die one day. That was the thing that the heavy note of the film was that one scene where those those guys are like, hey, we'll see you soon, man, and they just drive off in their Cadillac, you know, with their cool like pompadours and everything, and it's like they're yeah. like they're like the angel of death that's gonna come and visit him again at some point soon. From the way you describe it, it also seems like it's almost like a casual thing. Like they're just saying, we'll see you soon. Yeah. And the implications of that are so much bigger. And I feel like that also speaks a lot of the nature of the nature of almost realizing that we are all mortal and we have to face it someday. And it's almost like the loss of innocence can happen so quickly and often does it, it often happens in people's lives without realizing a, a milestone just happened yeah yeah definitely you know and who knows maybe uh they, and they leave it open-ended i mean it's it's actually likely that seth is going to get murdered by these guys you know what i mean because they've been killing yeah. all the other kids in the town so he might never actually live a full life like his life might be cut short before he was 10 years old you know yeah, and that's a, that's a heavy realization for a child. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, I mean, hopefully not too many people get their first brush with death from, you know, a gang of Cadillac killers. Cadillac <laughs> but, killers, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it, it, it's a heavy thing. And, and, you know, everybody has their own story of uh, people that are pretty insightful and can really analyze their life. Uh, there's often a moment in everybody's life where um, they just realize, you know, life is finite and this shit can be taken from you real quick. Or maybe it won't even be soon. It's just eventually. When people first come to terms with death, it's an extremely heavy thing. Absolutely. So, moving on from that, um, 
And also, by the way, I, I definitely have not seen that movie, but from you describing it, I definitely have heard of it, and I got I got to check it out. It, it's a it's a hard recommend. Like yeah, you, you got. I I think if you love films, and and once again, this is not necessarily. I mean, that's the thing. We we, we I wanted to talk about the definition of a horror film because this is not. I wouldn't even say this is a horror film. I don't even think it's classified as that. Reflecting. Yeah. Screen. Well, okay, so I'm going to get to my number three, but I just wanted to say something about, you know, the nature of, like, disturbing movies, and maybe you would classify it or maybe you wouldn't as a horror movie. So when I was coming up with this list, I was really trying to figure out, like, what just affected me so deeply and what really moved me in a way that was kind of not good. And it didn't make it to the list, but one of the ones that I was actually thinking of was the matrix oh wow okay um because i saw that movie when i was a kid i was uh, about like 10 11 years old something like that i was staying with my uncle in california as my parents were getting divorced um so it was like this huge thing for me and my brothers you know our life is just being turned upside down and there's so much movement in all areas and I think I was a little more sensitive to things during that time. And I just remember seeing, you know, Neo when he wakes up and he's in the real world. It just scared the shit out of me, man. I That was my first brush with having anxiety. Like I had a, an anxiety attack as a kid thinking, is this real? <laughs> what What is this life? And, you know, a question like that being posed to you, I had never thought about it before. Why would I? I was a kid. I would never think that maybe this isn't real. And what is the nature of reality? So that movie faced me with it and it, it severely disturbed me. Um, but being that I wanted to really get on uh, more of like movies that fall in line with horror um, or thriller, as you said, I chose not to include it because I thought of other movies that I also just wanted to talk about more but i also wanted to give that an honorable mention before moving on um so with that said my number three and i'm sure this is on a lot of people's lists as well it's martyrs the original version oh yeah man yep i mean you can't not that just the sheer brutalism of that movie first of all is astounding so getting into horror and uh wanting to push my limits right so this this is it's a french extreme film and if you follow this podcast or like anything regard related to horror i'm sure everyone has heard about this movie but i'm not so sure everyone has seen it because it pops up very often on on extreme grotesque violent disturbing lists this is one that you will find very often and i think the reputation is 100% accurate. It, it, it's brutal, number one. And it disturbed me in that area. But beyond being just brutal and shocking and violent, I think it's a great movie. And the themes go pretty deep once you figure out really what's going on here and that whole society that wants to figure out the afterlife and uh, how they think bringing people so close to death and extreme pain will give them glimpses into it, right? Yeah. Um, 
So I wouldn't say there's, I wouldn't say that the theme of the movie is truly disturbing to me. I wouldn't even, I couldn't even pick a single scene because the movie is, it's just brutal and it's extreme. It's a hard watch. I think it also deserves to be on a lot of those lists because it's just a good movie beyond that. Now, yeah, I, I have I have a, a very long standing relationship with that film. It's uh, it's you know it, it's on it's also on my list too. But uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. that there's a lot to be said about that movie for sure. So something I also love about the movie is the ending. Um, what what do you think was said? You know, that's the thing that disturbs me about this film. It's not really? it's not the brutality. It's not the torture, you know. It's not the workmanlike uh, way that the torturers meted out all this violence on the young lady. You know, they're they're like, yeah, they're punching her and stuff like that. You know, it's like not yeah. these elaborate tortures. You know, they're force feeding, and you know, it's just um, the ending. Spoiler alert: is it becomes clear that what the aim of this this uh, you know secret society. It's this one person. I, th- I forgot her name. Mad- the madam, madam, or maybe who? Is, yeah, Mademoiselle or something. Yeah, like Mademoiselle. That. Like she's like you know all like dressed all cool and everything. Is um her her fascination with the beatific look that martyrs have, you know, people who are like experiencing extreme pain or close to death, and they have this peaceful look on their face, even though they're they're experiencing the most extreme sensations of of torture or pain and um that's what gave her the idea that they're looking into the next realm after life you know or that some vision of god is coming to them that they're being lifted out of this like world of suffering into a better place theoretically uh so her whole obsession is to push people particularly young women because i think that was part of the the whole thing was like, oh, well, you know, young women are susceptible to this, okay? Pushing them to these extremes, you know, right to the threshold of death and then finding out what they see. And then the, I forgot the, actually, I probably have it down here somewhere, but the the woman who's being tortured, you go into this whole, this like explosion of light and, you know, possible, uh, you know, DMT, kind of um psychedelics you know experiences which is a near-death experience and then mademoiselle asks her you know what do you see and she whispers something into her ear which you don't know what she says they Mm -hmm. don't tell you about it and then mademoiselle just shoots herself in the head and it's it's over with now (laughs) there's a debate as to what she actually said now yes you know one thing could be I've looked into the beyond and I see like, you know, paradise or I see nothing. It's just darkness and that's it. The abyss. So, um, each, in each case, you have to look at it one way. It's like two different, you can look, you can, the, the, the same result might happen from both of those things. Yes. Because if there is an afterlife, she just wants to go. Right. Um, if there isn't, her entire you know life's work is for naught and there's also a little detail in which she tells the other people in her little 
her little merry crew. <laughs> uh, keep doubting, I believe. She says something along those lines. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that that's what I, I skew more towards the kind of nihilistic uh, ending where it's like there's nothing. And, you know, and she's like, well, fuck it. There's no point of living, really. There's no point of existing because yeah. everything is just like, you know. Uh, the madness of it all, like in the Thomas Ligotti story, uh, Flowers of the Abyss, where he's like, I see the madness of it all, where it's like just this whole thing is a fucking dream, you know? Yeah. And it reminds me of uh, of that sort of realization, and that's why she kills herself at the end. That, that's, my, that's just my take on it. There's like all these different, you know, debates over what she actually saw, what she said, this this kind of thing, you know? So... I'll, I'll, I agree with your take. However, I am not so sure that that's actually what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe there's a definite possibility that the last, you know, fuck you was to be just to, to tell her there's nothing. Ah, uh, yeah. See? Okay. Yeah. It gets more so, interesting. The more, you, the more you talk about it, the more options you get. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. And it just unravels. So I took it as, you know, she couldn't hurt her physically. She can never get revenge. And the movie is almost, it's, it's kind of about revenge, right? Because that's what this, this young woman is on the, the, the quest for because she was, you know, I think kidnapped or something like that as a child. That's why they break into the house to begin with. Yeah, there's a, whole other, there's a whole other section of the movie. There's, it's almost like two movies like crammed into one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So going into that, knowing that's the theme of this movie, uh, and if you want to classify it almost as like a revenge movie or something. Uh, so she's never going to hurt this woman. She's, you know, pretty much incapacitated and she's on the brink of death. She saw something or didn't see something. And I, I tend to think personally, the happy ending, let's say <laughs> the happy ending. Yeah, there is no happy ending, but the happy ending in my mind is her getting one last getting the last laugh but okay so here's also where it gets a little confusing if there is an afterlife and things do go on and she just lied right right and then the woman kills herself because she thinks it's it's fruitless but then she goes to the afterlife so she gets what she kind of wanted who really wins in this situation like there's just no winning for anyone because it's sort of like if you want to look at it from the perspective that she's just saying it to, you know, to hurt her. And then she, she, you know, she kills herself, but there was an afterlife and then she goes and she's in the afterlife now, which is what she kind of wanted. Kind of backfired. You get what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. That's what, that's why this film is number one, one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen. And number two, one of the most interesting movies I've ever seen because of the dialogue you can have about it. You can go back and forth with all this stuff, these ideas. I'm sure there's even more takes on it that we don't even know about. A hundred percent. And there's so many layers to it. And it's almost like you get to make up your own mind. And I love that. There have been very few movies I've ever seen where it's so ambiguous, but also in a good way. Like, there's so many layers to it and, and so many things you could take from it. And I don't think any of them are wrong. It's, it's letting you decide. It's, I love when movies respect the viewer to say, okay, give me this information 
fill in the blanks. What do you think happened? I love that. Um, so I, I find the movie extremely disturbing, but I, I also find it so interesting and well done. And I feel like it deserves to be on any sort of list you could put it on just so people watch it. And so they see what, what it's all about. I also find the heavy themes to, to really elevate the, let's just call it the disturbing rating. Right. Yeah. Because it's, it's not trash. It's it, you know, there's so many different themes that it's almost like, you know, a revenge movie. And then it's almost, you know, just brutal torture. And then it's like these philosophical themes. It's not, and I keep going back to movies like Terrifier just because it's just, it's brutal and people find it disturbing, but there's really no overarching theme of something like the afterlife or, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah, that, that, I mean, the philosophical end of it is what really disturbs me. And I remember the first, I've only seen this movie twice. I, I've only been able to bring myself to see it a second time. And, uh, really? And that was because I was showing it to someone. Like, you got to see this, you know? And yeah, I just remember watching that movie and just being so bummed at the end of it. And it just being like, man, this is like one of the darkest things I think I've ever, <laughs> movies I've ever seen, you know? Yeah. It, you know, as disturbing as it was, I kind of had the opposite reaction. I was pumped. Okay. I was like, because I was just so amazed. I, I thought it was so well done and I didn't see that whole philosophical thing coming. And I was just like elated. I saw something like this and, and I thought it was so awesome. Despite having me be sick to my stomach from, from the whole thing. Yeah. Well, well, that's the other thing to, to mention too is that this. In my, I was looking at this as kind of that the last torture porn movie because it showed like it was heavier than any frivolous like torture porn film that was out there. Because I was this movie came out in two thousand eight, okay, and that whole new French extremity like that uh, move movement lasted from like late nineties, like say ninety eight to like twenty ten or something like that. So, in the early part of the 2000s, that was like a big uh, genre, you know, subgenre. Was like torture porn, like the um, hostel, the hostel, and like you know, the girl next door, and like all these movies that were coming out were about like you know tying up women and beating them and you know torturing them and stuff like that. Which is not my. That's not something I, I don't get into movies like that myself. So when I when they started going down that pathway with this film i was like oh man yeah i don't know but then i stuck it out and i was like this is the final word on torture porn you know and in a way like pascal logier the guy who wrote and directed it i kind of feel like this movie was a little bit in that in response to, to films like that you know what i mean he added this like philosophical bent and there was he they even made an in, there was an intention to say that Oh yeah, the best subjects for this type of experimentation are young women. So that it, it was like even more focused on making a statement that there were young women being tortured. Yeah, I, I've actually, I funny you said that because I've considered that before about this movie almost being like the last word on the whole torture porn thing. And honestly, if you really want to talk about this new uh, 
charm floating around elevated horror. I don't think it gets much better than uh, Martyrs. I really don't. I, I think there's so much it there's so much going on and it doesn't rely on uh, really anything too pretentious or artsy. It just it does what it does and it is it's genius. It's incredible, incredible, incredible movie. And you really gotta you gotta have an iron stomach to sit through it and to you know to get to the philosophical elements it's almost like your reward well yeah a lot of those french directors from that french extremity uh you know late early millennium um movement you know that it's 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 interesting like that you mentioned that elevated horror quote unquote because this predates all that stuff like you mentioned but these guys were like i i just got a book about that film movement i haven't started reading it yet i heard i heard about it on another podcast called the evolution of horror and they had the the writer of that book was on and they were talking about all these french directors like you know gaspar noe uh claire denis uh pascal logier alessandro bustillo like all those people and in interviews the common thing that they said was they were influenced by american slasher films and all the art house stuff that they were in, in, inspired by. So it's like the sort of, you know, uh, confrontation of those two almost diametrical forces, you know, like super schlocky slasher films, you know, lowbrow and highbrow kind of meeting together. And this, all these films are part of that sort of, you know, marriage of those two things. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, also, by the way, Pascal Logier was one of these guys like one of the many <laughs> that were uh, at one point on board to do the hell, the Hellraiser uh, film that just came out. Yeah. Dude, I remember, I remember you telling me about that when yeah. uh, we were doing that, the Hellraiser episode, just yep. being so bummed that it didn't work out that way. Well, because this, you know, Logier wrote this too. So he's a guy who thinks deeply on this stuff and, how awesome would it have been to have like you know a Hellraiser movie made by this guy, you know? Yeah, I mean the the themes are they kind of even overlap. Yeah, uh, you know I think beautifully, and I, I you know it, it, that is a movie that it's it's an honest crime that we didn't get his take on Hellraiser. <laughs> well, yeah, who knows? In another couple of years, maybe they'll make another remake of it. You know, they'll they'll go deeper into this rabbit hole of you know the Cenobites and everything. You know. Yeah, would be great. I'm going to call that the most recent one. It's going to be Heck Razor, not Hellraiser. <laughs> Heck Razor. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. All right, so wait, we're up to three now, right? Is that is that your three. third one? Yep. All right, so my yeah. my third one is um, a film called The Other, which uh, came out in 1972, uh, directed by Robert Milligan and written by... It was based on a novel by Thomas Tryon. And Thomas Tryon, also, he wrote the screenplay in the novel. And he was actually an actor, like a guy that was, like, really big in, like, war movies in the early 60s. Interesting guy. All right, so sure. once again, this takes place out. Actually, this takes place in Connecticut. And uh, it's, like, in a more rural town setting. And it's um, in, the, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, there's, like, these two kids niles and holland all right and there's a grandmother who has these psychic abilities that 
both of the the young the young uh, boys have, and they call it the game. It has to do with astral projection. Uh, not to go too deep into the plot. Um, it turns out that Nile that uh, Nile Niles and his bro- and his brother Holland, one of them is dead. Okay, and he died the year before, and he's using this astral projection game to to bring Nile to bring Holland back into his life. But it's like a he's not really there. But they're they're project they're two twins that are shown throughout the film. Uh, a lot of mishaps befall the family. There's an older sister who has a, a baby, and the um, like Niles is is fascinated by the Lindbergh abduction of, of, a, of a baby so he abducts the, the child and you know through misfortune you know the, the child is killed and it's just really ugly stuff happens right and that this film it's maybe because I once again I saw that at a very young age was this one of the fucking creepiest movies I think I've ever seen and the fact that it had to do with kids and me being a kid at the time, and the fact that there was a good and bad twin, but they were all basically the same person, like had really fucked me up when I was younger, you know. And yeah. and uh, you know they just they find like the the dead the dead baby and they call it an angel and all this stuff. Oh, I was just even now I'm starting to get like chills thinking <laughs> about that movie. But um, it's hard to describe. Like when when I when I try to describe the film, which was, I'm like, you know, what the fuck? Like, so what? You know, but it's the atmosphere of the movie, uh, you know, the the banality of the setting, and the fact that there is these like kind of supernatural things going on that may actually only be inside one of the one of the uh, characters' minds, and all yeah. of this like evil is like manifested around this one particular person and that's like what really fucking gets me and i still have i, I i've watched it uh as recent as maybe a year ago and it, and it really you know kind of kind of creeped me out you know and it's one of those things when halloween comes around i'm like oh yeah you know i'll watch the other i'm like you know what yeah i think i'm gonna skip it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it makes me wonder, um, that movie, Good Night, Mommy. Um, I wonder if that was sort of a, a bit of the inspiration behind it. Could be. It could be a riff on this because it has that, – that movie actually reminded me a little bit of the, of the other, actually, when I watched it. Yeah. That's another movie that I, I, I found pretty disturbing just mm-hmm. to, you know – I mean, I don't really need to say anymore. A lot of people have also found it pretty disturbing knowing that one of these characters that the whole time you didn't realize is not there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So. And I think it disturbed me because it reminded me of this movie, you know? Yeah. That's another one, you know, that, that's a very good pick. Uh, I've never even heard of that one. And I'm pretty well versed in a lot of this stuff, so I really like when something pops up. And like, I've never even heard that in my life. I have the novel, but guess what? I never read it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's on my bookshelf, and I'm like, someday I'm going to read this book. But I'm like, ah, fuck, I don't know, man. Maybe not. Yeah, I, certain things just creep into your skin. Yeah, it's it's that's the great thing about horror. It really it, it does so many different things for. You know, I, I could watch a movie with you. We could sit down and watch it and have two 
totally different yet valid experiences watching it. And I, I love that about the genre because it, it invokes such a, like a primal feeling. It does. It does. Definitely. Um, so moving on from, from number three to number two, which is, I brought up before that the exorcist was going to be on my list and it is absolutely before I found my number one movie, it was the most shook I've ever been in my life. <laughs> so seeing the exorcist, I watched it. I don't, I'm not sure if I shared this story with you. I, I tell people about it all the time. Cause now looking back, it's so funny, but I watched it with my mom and my stepdad in the middle of the day in my living room. And I was like, I don't know, 13 years old, something like that. My mom was telling me how, you know, she saw it in theaters or whatever. And, people passing out at the time and how scary it was when it first came out. So we watch it and like that, that was it. Everyone says this movie's so scary. Like, <laughs> you know, like whatever. I thought it was cool. I, I loved it. But I was like, that wasn't that bad. Right. Middle of the daytime. I, I forget what I did, but I will never forget. I went into my room because we were going to watch another movie. I think it was like, you know, weekends, so all my step siblings were over and stuff. Right. And we would just like sit and watch movies or hang out in the living room. So I, I went into my room and it was a little dark in there. And I think I was getting like a blanket or a pillow or something like that. And I will never remember sorry, I'll never remember. I will never forget the sensation of stepping into that dark room and just the fear of Reagan sitting in there possessed. Yeah. Just struck me. And I dude I grabbed whatever I was getting, closed the door as fast as I could, and fucking ran back into that living room. So that night, it, you know, I was fine in the daytime, right? Uh, my brother shared a room. They had bunk beds. And uh, I had my own room. I was the oldest. And, dude, that night, there was no fucking way in hell I was sleeping alone. All I could think about was Reagan and her face just standing in the corner. I'm not kidding. I slept in my brother's bed in one of the bunk beds against their will. I'm the oldest. <laughs> I'm the oldest child, right? That's Besides awesome. my step siblings. I slept. I don't remember which one, but I remember it was I slept on the top bunk for a week straight because I didn't even want to see the floor because I thought maybe Reagan would be sitting there. The, the oldest boy in this family, right, <laughs> sleeping in my brother's bed because I'm too chicken shit to sleep in my own because I was so petrified of Reagan and her face and the exorcist, man, it's real, you know, like, especially being a kid, I was like, this is, this could really happen. This is, this must, you know, this could really happen. Can I be possessed? Um, I know that feeling, and, man. I know that feeling because yeah. I had the same feelings. Yeah. And, you know, also, I feel like seeing it as a kid, which we both had just a couple decades apart, fucking being a kid and seeing another innocent kid. It's this whole loss of innocence thing, right? Yeah. And seeing this sweet little girl, something 
so horrible happened to her. It just it it rocked my world, and I was convinced that I was never going to sleep in my own room again. <laughs> also, um, the fact that all of the action in this film takes place in their in the home, so there's a lot of the kind of desecration of your home too. You know, it's, yeah, and yeah. It, it's not a haunted house. It becomes a haunted house. It, it, and you're right. It's just so when you were talking before about the scene where they're having the dinner party and she walks in and pees on the floor, the scene felt blasphemous. Yep. Right. Exactly. And I think that scene also really bothered me because you're there was like the beginning of her possession. Uh, I imagined in the movie everyone's ignorance of what is coming and just it was a strange event and sure it was disturbing but if they had known the terror that was about to you know befall this normal home this welcoming warm inviting place would be just a war zone between good and evil not for nothing it's also another movie that it, it's it's an actual masterpiece it's a movie about faith um and you know losing it but i i think in the end something i really love about the movie is it's a little hopeful things get cleared up and and yes uh damien sacrifices himself to you know save reagan but the book definitely goes into a lot more discussion about faith and his wavering um dedication to his life's calling so I, I think it's another movie that works. It, it, it's deeply disturbing. It's it's very scary. It's really well done. And there are a lot of themes that aren't really slapping you in the face saying like, hey, pay attention. You know, it's like you got to dig a little deeper. Yeah, and uh, Jason Miller, man, as Father Damien is like such a compelling like character, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love when he shows up again in The Exorcist 3. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, so wait, that was your number three or four? What well, uh, two rather? Right? Where, where <laughs> that, are we at that, now? That was number two. Okay. All right. So I'm at my number two. Okay. Yes. My number two is 1986's Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Dude, I debated putting that on my list as well. Yeah. Uh, directed by uh, John McNaughton. Also, uh, he wrote it with along with uh, Richard Fine, and uh, this is my first uh, time seeing Michael Rooker, you know, who would show up in many many films, and mm -hmm. uh, Tom Towles, who uh, and and it basically follows uh, Henry and Otis, who you can say are um, Henry Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Tool. However. There's quite a bit of license taken with the types of characters they are, and uh, yeah, for me, I you know I saw this later. Like I this well, this movie came out in 1986, but it wasn't like it was showing anywhere. You know what I mean? It was it was showing in like some creepy like 42nd Street, you know, the Grindhouse or something like that. It wasn't like you can really find this movie. Um, I think I finally saw this film in the early 90s, maybe. And uh, it was right around the time when I started, you know, traveling around the country. 
and also around the time I started reading about serial killers, because like in the in the '90s, for me at least, there was like a big interest in that stuff. Like you know, there was all these, you know, Answer Me magazine was around, and you know, people were writing about serial killers and true crime, and uh, it was something I was very much interested in in that stage of my life. And um, I remember seeing this movie, and the the mundane setting of everything. It was like in yep. some Midwestern city somewhere, some rundown part of the city, you know, uh, you know, regular people, you know, and almost it almost felt like a documentary. Yeah, like it felt so real watching this movie. And after I saw the movie, I was constantly looking over my fucking shoulder, man. It yeah. was. I always felt like someone. I just felt so threatened at all times after seeing this movie. Yeah, and, and you know, it's also one of those movies where it works because, you know, you kind of like Henry. Oh yeah, kind of. Yeah, for sure. You know, like he's he's a serial killer, but the way that you know Michael Rooker plays him, it's like you almost like want to. <laughs> Look past that. <laughs> sure, he's a serial killer and he does horrible things, but I mean, Michael Rooker, great actor, right? How bad can he be? Um, I think also the very ending in that movie with the suitcase really oh. messed me up. Now, let me ask you a question. You ever you ever see random stuff like that just on the side of the street when you, in your travels? Like a suitcase oh, yeah. just out on the highway or like on some main road somewhere? Yeah. I mean, it always makes me think of that, you know, like there's oh, there's a body in there or something like that, you know. Well, I and you know, I think that movie works so well because, you know, like you said, the mundane setting and you never really know. You never know. Like, I think about all the time when I'm staying in like a hotel or something like that. Like, what else is going on in here? In the other rooms, there could be some very unsavory things, and I'm sure it's going on. But, you know, violence is almost like movies like that. It, it reminds you like the violence and the the evil side of the human condition. You never know where it's going to come from. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it affected me so deeply that shortly after I saw this movie, I started really training heavily martial arts. Like I started training like Muay Thai and stuff like that. So I could defend myself against someone tries to attack me out there in like the, <laughs> mid, the Midwest somewhere, you know? <laughs> Thanks, Michael Rooker. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that guy, Tom towels, the guy who plays, uh, he, he's the, the more, the creepier out of the two. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like he's like real creepy, you know, he showed up in another film in the nineties called God's lonely man. Have you ever heard of that movie? Uh, no. It's like super, super low budget ripoff of Taxi Driver, basically. Okay. And Justine Bateman's in it too. Uh came okay. out. Let's see. I think I haven't came out in '96, and it takes place in L.A. I mean, basically, it's the same plot as Taxi Driver, and there, but there's there there's some other set pieces that go on, but Tom Towell shows up in that movie. As a guy who is a uh, you know a, a child pornographer, and there's a scene that's like so fucking intense and creepy, and just you feel like you have to like shower after this scene, 
where yeah. um, where the the protagonist, the Travis Bickle character, of this movie goes to a house where there's a guy who make who has access to these movies, and they're like just the way that they're they're like talking to each other. You know, it's just so it's just very. That's the best part of the film because how you see what a real actor that guy is. You know, and, yeah. and he shows him a, a you know a, a child por- pornographic film, and he's mm-hmm. like, yeah. You want to see it? You know, it's 90 seconds long. <laughs> it's like you have $10,000 or something like that. Yeah. It's just, it, it's almost like the guy who made the film knew a little too much about that world, you know? Yeah. And, just and, like yeah, depravity yeah. <laughs> in your face. Exactly. And I was like, man, I don't know. Like, I believe Tom Towels is a guy who would do that kind of thing, even though apparently the the man is nothing like the characters you portrayed apparently from people I know that have met him that he's like a real sweetheart of a guy so that's how yeah. great great of an actor he is or was yeah oh passed, yeah passed recently I, I the mark of a great actor is to actually you know make you believe that there's something different than who they are in real life that's all the time you're like I love Keanu Reeves I think he's a horrible actor because he could just be himself. He's great as himself, <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. But he's not a good actor because he's he's always Keanu Reeves. He can't turn that off. I love him. He's one of my favorite actors, sure. actually. But, you know, he's definitely not able to slip into any role and be, uh, you know, like going back to even like The Matrix, you know, it was great because he almost had this like, he was cast in that role perfectly because he was so almost just like quiet and reserved and, and it just really worked. Um, but there's definitely, you know, something to be said about people that could just step into any role and make you really believe like they're this vile, evil person where in real life, a pretty nice guy, <laughs> sweetheart, you know, real, real quick about Keanu Reeves. My, you know, my ex was a, um, or is a like a, a video editor and part of part of her gig was she worked for this production company and they would they would film and edit like extras for um you know blu-ray releases and things like that and when keanu reeves had uh man of tai chi do you know that movie yeah <laughs> i i never saw it but he was uh doing like shooting uh extras for the blu-ray release of that so he was at there he was being interviewed at their office, right? So she was telling me that, yeah, Keanu Reeves, he just showed up by himself. Like he got on the subway, went there, and just showed up at their office with no entourage. He just walked in. And I thought that was fucking cool. Yeah. Because usually there are all sorts you, of stories. Oh, yeah. You, you, usually, like people, like, you know, like, like they also interviewed Eli Roth and he had like his publicist there and this and that and all these other people. And, you know, he says usually there's like at least two or other two other people with him, and you know, but you got the sense that he's just like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go talk to these people today. And he just yeah. showed, he just showed up, you know. He's like, all right, you know, I'm here all afternoon or whatever, however long you want you want to talk, I'll yeah. be here, you know. And that that's the thing about him, like, you kind of get that vibe every movie he's in. Pretty like, much, yeah. He, you know, he's just like every. You know, like in every man's guy, whatever the phrase, something like that. But yeah, definitely not a good actor, but also at the same time, amazing actor, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Likeable. Likeable guy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think that 
leads to number one. Yes. And so this is a movie I've only seen once and I'm not sure if I it will ever have the same impact for me because it relies so heavy on an integral reveal. So I almost don't ever want to watch it again for two reasons. Number one, it was so intensely disturbing to me that I literally felt my stomach drop. Okay. You know, like I was on a roller coaster. And uh, number two, you know, it's one thing to not want to see a movie again because it was so disturbing. But there, it also says something when a movie is so good and, and really gets you like that that you don't want that horrible feeling to be uh, – you know, not as overwhelming. Right. So that's like yeah. the other funny thing about horror. Like you cherish that, like almost disgusting, disturbing fucking thing that it does to you. Right. So with that said, my number one, absolutely most disturbing thing I've ever seen in my life is old boy. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Right on, man. So that whole well, long intro was because if anyone's seen the movie, you know the twist. You've seen it, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. A couple times. A few times, yeah. Yeah. Braver than I am. Um, so, yeah, man. I, I, I mean, I just remember... It's another movie that's always on those lists of, you know, super disturbing movies, whatever. So, here I am. I'm watching it. I'm like, well, it's not, like, overly violent. Like, it's kind of violent. You know, it's not, like, overly scary either. I thought it was, like, a horror and it turns out more of like a mystery movie, right? Yes, it is. So he's just trying to figure out everything. And it's going, it's going, it's going. It's like, you know, it's, it's tense or whatever. And then just the realization, uh, you know, of like Desu and who his love interest is. Yep. Oh, my God, man. I will never. And, you know, once again, his reaction to that, you know, cuts out his tongue and. It's that's some heavy, heavy, heavy shit, and I, I, I will never forget the feeling I had watching that. And uh, I've never been so disturbed from a movie in my life, and I don't think I ever will be again. It was delivered so perfectly, and once again, so you want to talk about like disturbing movies and stuff? I feel like. You know, movies can be shocking. They can be really out there. They can gross you out. But, uh, and, you know, a lot of movies, you know, especially like from the 80s or trashy camping movies that are fun and they're kind of gross and disturbing, whatever. There's something you said about a movie that's just, it's it's also really well executed, well put together, well edited. The storyline is good. It's believable. And so everything about Old Boy, just it just works. It, it's an amazing, amazing movie uh, that had me guessing the whole time and really, really interested in the plot. And then it just punches you in the face with the most horrifying realization that anyone could have. And, you know, no, I wouldn't say it's a horror movie, but... Yeah. The implications are absolutely beyond horrifying. And uh, nothing has ever stuck with me so much besides, you know, that movie. 
it, it, it was just it, it devastated me, man. Like the the implications, right? And then so at the you know once again I'm going mainly from memory because I I don't think I'm ever going to watch this movie again. Um, so I didn't really want to go back and rewatch it for this because I want that original feeling to be there. I want this movie to just be the most disturbing thing ever. And it was well done. I did it. I got it out of the way. I almost don't want that experience to be dulled. That makes sense. Um, so at the end of the movie, he, uh, he goes somewhere to have his, his memory wiped out or erased, right? So he could go back and forget what happened. But I also, which would be the happy version, but I also don't think it actually works. I don't think his memory is actually really well erased at the end. And he just has to live with that secret the rest of his life. And that that is what also really disturbs me about it. Just everything. It's just it's it's sick. It's crazy. How did someone write that? <laughs> Dude, uh yeah. No, it's it's uh Takashi Miike, uh they always list him as a horror director, but he's done a lot of stuff outside, but they're all very much these kinds of disturbing like films. Have you ever seen um, "I Stand Alone" by uh, Gaspar Noé? No, it, it's it kind of uh, operates in the same sphere as uh, as Old Boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all I'm gonna say about it. <laughs> yeah. So, it's... I uh, that that director um, Park Chan Wook. I'm looking up right now. Yeah, the Korean the Korean dude. Yeah. Fallen yeah. Fallen Angels and uh uh he, Chung King Express, right? Is that what he did? He did another movie. It was called he produced, I'm looking right now, this movie called Thirst. Yes, okay. Um and that that movie's pretty disturbing as well. Uh I, I really, really liked that. I was on a, a Korean movie kick for I still am very long time um, especially you know a little before it but uh, Parasite really got me back into it um, there, there's so many good movies like The Host oh yeah um, yep the Korean host yeah yeah definitely yep uh, Memories of Murder uh, so many so many there's just something in the water over there you know those Korean movies re- they really get me like <laughs> I, I'm really, really into them. I, there are so many good ones. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I also think the fact that, so I don't speak Korean, <laughs> right? So at Old Boy, I, I'm almost way out of my comfort zone. They're in these places where I've never been, and it, it's it's foreign to me. And I'm, like, dropped in this little different area of, of anything that that i'm used to and uh so i get a sense of almost discomfort uh, or watching something that's you know outside of my normal so i think that's also why the movie really got me because it's like it's it was setting me up personally the whole time i'm experiencing something that i'm not very familiar with and uh it really just drops that bomb on you and uh, it it really stuck with me, man. Like I don't, I do not. I couldn't think of 
another movie that's even come close to getting that sort of reaction. And so a lot of the reactions we've been talking about is fear, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, did it scare me? No. Did it disgust me? And did it truly disturb me? Absolutely. You know, I, I wouldn't say I was frightened by it. I, I can't even describe the feeling that I got from the reveal. And uh, revulsion, you know, like discomfort. Those are the things that come to my mind, actually. Yeah, like it, it, it was just horrible. And because of that, the movie is amazing. <laughs> I, I recommend checking out I Stand Alone, man. Honestly, that's, um, you know, if you're looking for some new. It's a French film. No way is part of that uh, new French extremity thing, you know? Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll definitely check it out, you know. Uh, oftentimes when, when we talk and, and you bring up, it's, you seem to only have good recommendations. So oh, I will I'll definitely check that out. Yeah. yeah. So my number one, we already talked about was uh, Martyrs, you know, and then okay. to date that movie is, I find myself thinking about that all the time, that movie. It's like one of these things that my mind wanders into those, those realms that are, uh, and that, and I don't really remember the violence. That's the thing, you know? Yes. I recognize that it's a very violent movie, but I, I only really meditate on the ending. The ending is what really gets me. The, the violence is it's extreme and brutal, and it's hard to watch at times, but I feel like I've seen violence of that level shown in films. But the ending, the ending is what always creeps me out, and it's just so heavy, you know? Absolutely, and, and you know, not for nothing, um, I knew, you know, this is going to be on your list because you, we, you briefly mentioned that, uh, you know, you, you said something when we first came up with this idea to do the top five about martyrs. So I knew it was going to land on yours as well. Um, so I knew we were going to talk about it a little bit. And I also just wanted to say, like, I don't know if cool is the right term, but the girl that they find in that house, that iconic you know, figure, right? With like the contraption around her head or whatever. Right, yeah. So scary, man. And and so like unique looking. Yes, and also very much like like early to early millennium, you know, like the the whole look of it, that contraption, you know what I mean? It's like it's something that that was like a thing that is very much reminiscent of that time that it came out too, you know. So in, in looking up this movie because um before I had seen it, I would find it on a lot of lists about disturbing movies and stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I, sometimes they have like flips or something. So they always had like that woman. Right. And I thought like, I don't know. I thought that was going to be the worst part about the movie. And it absolutely was not. <laughs> oh no. It was, it, it went so much deeper, so much deeper. Yeah. I watched this during the day too, man. And I was just like, the first time I watched it, there, there was a, um, when I lived in Greenpoint, there used to be a, uh, a video uh, store, this is how long ago we're talking now, called Photoplay that existed forever. Now, it's sadly, it's not there anymore. The space is still there, unoccupied, but the store has been gone for over 10 years, well over 10 years at this point. Um, and I used to... Um, I rented it from there because that dude got all those films. Like he had his, he always had the the most cutting edge shit. So when 
all that French extremity stuff started coming out. I forgot. I think Dimension, I think, brought him to the States. Uh, he, all those films showed up. You know, Martyrs, Frontiers, High Tension, like all that stuff. You know, the Gaspar No films. And uh, this showed up. And I watched it in an afternoon because my, my, my ex at the I knew she wouldn't like it because she this just wasn't her type of thing. So when she was away at work, I figured I'll watch it in the afternoon by myself. Um, and I was like, when it ended, I was like, what now, now what, you know, like, like what the <laughs> fuck do I do with the rest of my day after watching this movie? You know? Yeah. I was about to say, it's not really something you, you see in like a, you know, an afternoon setting and, and it just ruins your day thinking about the implications of this heavy fucking movie. It's not like you spent the afternoon watching the Simpsons. Exactly. You know? And, uh, yeah. So yeah, it's it's always it's always going to be there in my mind somewhere, and all these feelings surrounding it, you know, and and that that's why it's number one on my list, man. It's like I always think about this movie. Yeah, that, you know, that's that's like for old boy for me, it's like you certain things just get you, and they get you good, and it it sticks with you, and you know. Horror fans are a sick bunch, right? Because we we talk about stuff like this, and it's like, dude, it was so disturbing. I wanted to vomit. I'm never going to see it again. It was awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. Um, but yeah, that's uh, yeah. Um, you've seen the American version, right? The remake. I actually haven't because don't even. Bother. I've also no, I I've not seen the American remake of Old Boy either. Um, just because I, I heard that both of those versions sort of just took the original film and, and watered it down. Actually, speaking of Goodnight Mommy, I believe they just released something like that on Amazon with Naomi Watts. Um, yeah, so. I don't know. Man. <laughs> you know, I agree. I mean, I the only reason I saw Martyrs, the remake is because Mike and I were going to talk, we talked about it on, on Necromaniacs. We, we, we did a, that was back when we first started out, we would do like two or three movies an episode. And yeah, but we would only do like two episodes a month or one episode. We, we weren't regular with it, but, um, and we, so we did the original and the remake and I was like, fuck, I got to figure out how to watch this remake. And, and there, it was just exactly what I thought it was garbage. You know, I didn't like it. So was it, just did it even have the same like themes no. or no i it it was when, when i it, it was around the time when they were there was all these awesome foreign films these international films that they just the americans remade them and i was like man there's no with the environment that we maybe now a movie like that like that could be remade you know effectively in the states because filmmakers are in a different place yeah, but back then it was like, all right, they're just going to Americanize it. It's not going to be extreme. It's not going to have the same heavy like themes. Um, it which it had none of that stuff because prior to that, uh, Wreck was remade as Quarantine, and I was like, of course they fucking ruined that too, you know? Yes, I remember that. Um, also, funnily enough, that you brought that up, dude. That movie Wreck scared the living shit out of me totally me too man yeah that girl at the end or whatever that old beast whatever it is i remember watching it and just i was i was sitting there with 
with Mark, actually, you know, yeah. uh, bass player, you know, Mark. Of course. Um, and yes. I just, I would just go, oh my God, what the fuck is that? What the fuck is that? Like yelling, and, and which like, you know, I usually don't do when it comes to like scary shit like that, but oof, man, that was scary. That almost made the list, but that was more being horrified than disturbed. Yeah, that, that, that was that was a really quality film, man, and, and they ruined it, the Americans, when they got their hands <laughs> on it. Because it's like the people in the wreck, they look like regular people. Like the firemen look like firemen, you know? Yeah. And like in the United in the U.S. version, it's like the firemen are like all ripped and with abs and look like models and stuff like that. <laughs> it was just yeah. like, I'm like, come on, dude. You know, like this is like, yeah, they just made it like some cleaned up like U.S. version of it, you know? Yeah. Fuck that. Anyway, so something that I wanted to bring up because, you know, we're talking about top five most disturbing movies. Um, basically wanted to know, in your opinion, what what are the movies that made this list and uh, where do you draw the line? Like, because I'm sure there are some movies that you've seen that are disturbing, but you almost don't want to give them the time of day, Right. Something that comes to my my mind often, which I've never seen it, I've unfortunately seen clips, is a Serbian film. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I've seen it twice actually. <laughs> I, I own a, <laughs> I own a, I own a copy. I own a copy of it. Yeah. So what's your take on movies like that, where it's just so disturbing to the point of like literally seeing the worst things you could possibly see ever? You know, like, how do you view something like that? Well, the thing is with that movie, I did, I wasn't quite disturbed by that one. It was just like, uh, it was like watching like porn or something, you know, it was like a viol- yeah. violence porn. And um, yeah, because everything was so over the top and unrealistic to me. Yeah. And there was no, I mean, there actually is kind of like a subtext to it. You know, it has to do with like fascism and, you know, the political yeah. thing, you know. That wasn't lost on me when I saw the film, but it was almost like watching Sallow, you know, the Pasolini movie. Yeah. Like, I, I equate those two because they're both po- kind of political. They're both very extreme. They show disgusting things, but they don't necessarily... I don't, I don't find myself thinking about either one of those movies, really. Yeah, I almost find it just like, to me, my personal taste, taste no interest. Yeah, not into it. You know, there's also like uh, so Lars von Trier. Uh, I'm sure you oh, know yeah. him. Of course, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so like I, I saw the movie Antichrist. Yep. With Willem Dafoe. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's another movie that it, it sickened me, but I I didn't really, I don't think it belongs in a place where I think highly of it. Let's just say right. So it was certainly disturbing, and you know, I it honestly, that movie, for some reason, it just felt too bleak and too ugly, and I didn't enjoy it. So a lot of these movies on this list that we're talking about, I feel like, you know, you almost have to. We're talking about movies that disturbed us and really fucked with us, but we we still like them, right? So it, it's almost like. For me, there's a threshold when it becomes disturbing to the point of actually enjoying it and also just being like, fuck this movie, man, you know? Yeah, I saw that in a theater, actually. Actually, I saw a Serbian film in a movie theater, too. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, me and, me and Mike went to go from you know, Necromaniacs, Mike. We saw it in, in this place called the Alpine in uh, in Brooklyn. 
and uh, oh, okay. quite a story associated with that. And I saw Antichrist in a movie theater too, and um, it was a good movie, but like, I don't know, it was like, I don't know, it was cool, but it doesn't really rate on any lists for me. Um, Willem Dafoe is great. Uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg is awesome. I, I, I always like seeing her in movies. Uh, she's in um, Lux, Lux Eterna, the, another one of Gaspar Noe's films that's just out on Shutter now, um, along with Beatrice Dahl, uh, two French actresses that are like my favorite. They're like my favorite, two of my favorite French actresses. Yeah. Yeah. They're always great in, in whenever I see them on screen. So with that said, is there a line that you feel you would draw that you don't you almost don't want to see? Well, no, not really. I, I pretty much see anything, man. Like if 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 there's a good um like if it's something that enters into my orbit through the proper channels, like I hear about it from a reliable person, I'll I'll check it out. You know what I mean? Um in order for it to be like disturbing in a way that these films were there has to be like some kind of personal emotional resonance with it you know it can't just be like non-stop gore or over-the-top violence or you know disgustingness like you know like human centipede or something like that you know I, I didn't find that particularly disturbing yeah you know but it was like it was like a gag you know what I mean I was like all right cool like this is like I get I get it <laughs> I get it yeah, yeah. But uh, well, it's funny because yeah. so 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 many people, especially more casual horror fans, they draw pretty hard lines. Um, and funnily enough, I I wrote for a couple websites back in the day, and uh, this this one website I wrote for, the owner was like, "Hey, I want to start a horror movie website. Do you want to run it? Do you like this will be your baby? I'll pay you. I'll give you all the resources." Do what you want. I was like, oh, okay, cool. This is awesome. Right? So I hired a bunch of writers. Things were going pretty good. I really didn't seem to get horror that much, right? And I had this one uh, writer who uh, he wrote an article about uh, Cannibal Holocaust, right? And, you know, the owner, the dude who was funding the site, called me irate. <laughs> uh -oh. So angry. This is just what kind of sick individual would watch something like this? Like, <laughs> like for real, like there's some, there's this kid's mentally disturbed. You got to talk to him. You can't post pictures like that on the website. And, uh, you know, that was when I knew it wasn't going to work out. And I eventually ended up leaving and basically telling the guy to fuck off because he, he just ended up, he sucked. Yeah. He just didn't get um, it. You know? Yeah. He, he, he didn't get it. And, uh, so it's like funny that you know to hear from you that you have no line, right? No, none. I don't really have a line. I don't. I have things that I don't enjoy watching just because I just don't like it. But you're right. It's like if it enters into your orbit, and if there's something for the movie to say, or you know, you check it out. Yeah, you, you mean, know, like, and then and then there's just certain filmmakers that I'll, I'll I know that there'll be something like Gaspar No, anything by him. I'll, I'll watch because I know I like his what he does. You know, I mean, even Von Trier, even though I don't like all of his films, if he puts out a movie, then I'll probably see it. Like Melancholia, like I thought that was an, a great movie. Mm -hmm. You know, just dark, bleak, nihilistic. You know, the end of the world, like that kind of thing. It's like, 
like uh, you know there you know Robert Eggers I like a lot of his movies um you know uh I'm not sold on um who's a filmmaker he's he's a a 50-50 guy he's batting 500 right now the um the dude who made Hereditary Ari Aster Ari Aster I liked Hereditary quite a bit did not like um I want to call it Summerland Midsummer did yeah, not you did know, not mid- like that didn't wasn't into it i i thought it was a little too up its own ass let's just say yeah pretentious yeah yeah uh i mean it looked nice but i thought it was a little bit ridiculous i didn't hate it let's put it this way i saw it in the theaters and i was like oh i like this movie i thought it was really good but every time i thought about it afterwards i i had things that would like knock a point off there knock a point off there and so it's funny because I don't often see a movie where I think I like it. And then I start thinking about it. I'm like, actually, I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> it, I, it entertained I, me, but I didn't like it. I knew right away I didn't like it as soon as I left the, the theater. And then, then I found out <laughs> there was like an even longer cut available, which I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to see that. Yeah, that that's in, insane to me, that longer one. Um, I don't I have no interest in seeing that whatsoever. Yeah. Well, thanks, Paul. This is awesome, man. Yeah, dude. Uh, great episode to do with you. It really got me thinking, uh, you know, about like the heavier issues in horror, and it was also a nice trip down memory lane. You know, a lot of childhood memories with these these movies. Totally. Not pleasant ones, but fun to talk about. <laughs> Not pleasant <laughs> ones. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, thanks, man. And uh, I hope to see you sooner than later in person. Actually, man, hopefully we could you know figure out some you know there'll be a show or something like that coming out that we can hang out at. Yeah, let's let's do something, man. I'm always down. All right, man. Have a good night. Take care now.